Our very existence depends on this. This black strength. Strength that has carried us for decades, but is undermining an important aspect of our humanity and feeding in on itself. Being strong all the time took away our ability to speak about our weaknesses, our sadness, our mental illnesses. This silence is killing us. Welcome to another edition of the Black Doctor Speak podcast. Black Doctor Speak is your source for vetted, accurate information on African-American health from some of the nation's top doctors and is sponsored by the African-American Wellness Project. Good evening, good evening, good evening, and welcome to Wellness Watch presented by the African-American Wellness Project in partnership with BlackDoctor.org. I am one of your hosts, Ellis Dean, and welcome to another episode here where we give you the health news that you can use as we bring on the top experts that you can ask the questions that you need answered about the health conditions. So we have a wonderful, wonderful show planned for you tonight. We've got uh, Dr. Coleman, hopefully she'll be here. We've got Dr. Coleman coming in. Um, to talk about diabetes, and we're going to talk a little bit about diabetes and pre what it means to be pre-diabetic and all of those things that go along with diabetes. And so I'm sure that's a conversation that you want to stick around for. We also have Dr. Giacomo, I think I said that right, um, uh, on tonight. And we're going to talk about your foot health. And it's not something that we talk about very often. We've had him on the program before, and we brought him back because we talk about all the, the big things. We talk about hypertension. We talk about diabetes. We talk about all those other things, cancers and everything like that. But we rarely talk about foot health. And, and your foot, your feet are a very important part to in terms of everything that we do in, in terms of our health. And so we're going to bring on Dr. Giacomo and give you all what you need to know about your foot health. So if you have some questions, make sure you put them in the comment section too. So we make sure that we ask our guests with that. So uh, thank you all. Those of you that are already checking in, thank you for checking in. Make sure you let us know where you're watching from. We'd like to know where you're watching us from, from around the country and around the world. We've had some people watching us from as far away as South Africa and Suriname and, and everything in between. And so we really love to to see where you're watching us from. So Agnes, let us know where you're watching from. Oh, New York City, got you. And uh, Janie, let us know where you're watching from and can continue with the comments. Also, if this is a program that you find interesting, uh, shout out to Houston. If this is a program you find interesting, make sure you share it with a friend so they can get the great uh, content that we have planned for you this evening. So. I have filled up enough because, as you know, uh, Dr. Lenore is a working doctor. <laughs> He's just not here doing these programs. And sometimes work bleeds over into showtime. And so I'm going to I'm going to talk just briefly about where we are in terms of uh, COVID. We did a great COVID symposium. Uh, from the NMA this past weekend as the NMA is hosting its conference and we did a wonderful COVID symposium. Uh, the short version is this, um, it's still active. Cases are going up. Uh, most of the cases, I believe like 99% of the cases that are being reported are people that are unvaccinated. So it, it, the proof is in the numbers and the numbers are saying that if you're unvaccinated, you're more apt to be infected still. And with the Delta variant being a more aggressive variant um, and people that are unvaccinated are catching at a higher rate and they're finding themselves and hospitals are filling back up. I saw some videos and read some articles about Arkansas being kind of, you know, COVID central in terms of uh, uh, the Delta variant and uh, they're running out of beds and some hospitals are out of beds. Alabama is filling up as well, Mississippi as well. Uh, a lot of the Southern rural states that have been lagging behind overall in terms of vaccination rates are now, uh, the Delta variant is catching hold there and it is spreading widely through uh, the populations there. So if you're on the fence, let those numbers be your guide. And uh, the last thing I will say about, about uh, COVID is this. Um, when you say do your own research, make sure that your research is not just from your friends and from uh, articles that are, are selected and tagged on you by social media. Make sure when you're doing your own research, if you don't listen to anybody else, go to your primary care physician. That's the person that's taking care of you. So don't, you know, friends, family, get their information on how they reacted to the, to the vaccine, if they were vaccinated, or, or what their thoughts are. But the most trusted sources you should be going to is your primary uh, care physician. And I think somewhere along this whole path, since March of 2020, uh, when things really started ramping up, we lost sight of our healthcare professionals in terms of their role and their importance 
in our in helping us guide our healthcare decisions. And so I don't know how they got challenged. We're not even going down that road. That is more political. But I will say this: please, please, please speak to your healthcare provider, speak to healthcare professionals about what is going on. Uh, so you can make an informed decision from people that have dedicated their lives to keeping us healthy and safe and not your friend or your or your cousin or somebody that has read a little pseudoscience and now is trying to convince you uh, otherwise. So uh, again, I'm not casting any aspersions on anyone in terms of how they do their research. I'm just saying the best sources for medical research are from medical professionals and people that have, can study it and can interpret the data for you. Oh, I think I have filibustered enough, even though Congress is trying to get rid of the filibuster. <laughs> I have read it masterfully here. We have got Dr. Michael Lagarde with us this evening. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing good this morning. And then a bit, bit of a bad week, you know, lots of stuff going on, a couple of conventions to deal with. But uh, well, right now, I'm just happy to have the opportunity uh, to present to you probably the Bay Area's uh, most uh, famous uh, podiatrist. Dr. Yes. Michael Giacomo. And so today we're going to focus on foot problems in the beginning of our program. And, and I think later on in our program is Dr. Uh, 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 is the, we're going to talk diabetes or is that on the schedule? Yeah, diabetes with Dr. Coleman. So she is uh, going to join us a little later on. Yeah, Dr. Coleman is, is uh, great and she's got uh, some, some special items for you at the end of the interview that she's going to tell you about to help you really guide uh, if you have diabetes or if you know someone that has diabetes and if you're Black in America, I would say I would suggest 10 times out of 10, you know somebody that has diabetes, whether it's in your family or in your friend group that has diabetes. And so the information that Dr. Coleman is going to bring tonight is going to be really life-saving. And I, and I don't mean that facetiously. I mean that, that what the information she's going to bring in terms is life-saving. And so uh, really, really looking forward to that conversation with Dr. Coleman. But, you know, first, I'm bringing a doctor to Giacomo. Dr. Giacomo, welcome to our program. Thank you. Now, now, since I asked you to be on this program, I've had an ankle injury and a toe injury. Uh, <laughs> did you have anything to do with that? Does the what have anything to do with it? Did you have anything to do with that? Well, I'm calling up business wherever I can, so thanks for the effort. <laughs> did you do the golf course? No, no. Uh, no, I just got this walking around. Oh, when you get to be my stage, you just get stuff. You just wake up with stuff. Anyway, we want to thank you for joining us. I want to start off with a question that I think is uh, most important for much of our audience. What, in terms of the, the injuries you see, what do people do wrong uh, before they develop foot problems? Well, the things that pe people do wrong is that gets them into foot problems is the wrong heredity. If you pick the different parents next time around, you may not get a foot problem. But the other thing is people either become sedentary. These are general, broad general categorizations. Become sedentary, a bit overweight. That leads to a collapse of the arch of the foot and a breakdown of the joints around the toes and behind the toes. And the other category of people are those who are overactive and beat up their feet by being too, too much stress and strain. I was talking to a physical therapist just yesterday who said that she ran five miles a day, four days a week for years, and now her knees and her ankles are shot and she can't do it anymore. And she's very depressed about that. And of course, once those, those large joints like the ankles and the knees go away, there's not much you can do as far as restorative to function. Now, everybody now has uh, uh, these shoes with everybody's name on it. Uh, you know, I think some most of the time, or much of the time, they're selected for the name rather than for the shoe. In your experience, what are the mistake, biggest mistakes, first of all, that women make when they select shoes? Well, first thing is they typical, typically have an elevated heel in the women's shoe de department. And the elevated heel can be a, a half inch or as we've seen as high as six inches. And when a person wears a heel shoe, a shoe with a raised heel, over time, it gradually shortens the Achilles tendon and the calf muscle. Mm. What that does is it makes a greater pull on the muscle that holds up the arch called the posterior tibial muscle. And over time, if you don't overcome the, 
the heel lift, the, the elevation of the heel by stretching the Achilles tendon or doing a calf stretch, then it gradually will lead to the flattening of the arch and a breakdown of the joints in the middle of the foot. So if you do wear elevated heel shoes or high heel shoes, then you should in proportion to the time that you wear them, you should stretch accordingly. The runner stretch or the Achilles stretch where you put two hands on the wall, one foot forward, one foot back, keep the back knee locked and lean into the wall till you feel a nice stretch back in the calf muscle and hold it for 30 to 60 seconds, two or three times a day can help to overcome that shortening effect of the high heels. And the other thing is mix it up, of course. Don't wear high heels all the time. Wear different heel heights so that you don't develop a contracture. We've got Dr. Mike Giacomo here, and I know there are a lot of you out there with bad feet. Now, this is a, this is a good time to come in and ask your questions. I'm sure this will save you at least a visit or a co-payment. So if you're worried about your bunions or your corns or your, your ankle or your toes, uh, this is a good time, and this is why we're here at the Wellness Watch is to respond to your issues and not necessarily mine. Uh, let's start talking first about infants. You know, I got patients of mine who got some shoes for infants, man, that you would be, you'd like to have. And they cost a lot of money. Uh, they're, they're classically high heel, black, you know, flat shoes, designer shoes. Uh, what about shoes for, what is it, when does a child really need a shoe? child doesn't need a shoe until they become ambulatory and they're becoming ambulatory in the outdoors air arena. Uh, as you well know, these shoes that look stylish, the baby Jordans and so on and so forth, they cost a lot of money. And when you invest a lot of money in a cute little shoe for a cute little kid, your tendency is to let the kid grow into that shoe and sometimes outgrow the shoe. And you don't want to lay that money out again, getting another one. And kids, as you know, children's feet, infants' feet grow very quickly. So the most natural situation, especially up till the time that they're walking, which, you know, 12 to 14 or 15 months, is let them go barefoot. It's the healthiest thing you can do for the child's foot. So these shoes that we buy, you know, uh, for infants uh, don't last very long. Uh, and so you make a good point about the economics of it. Let's go over some terminology and talk about how this, these things are handled. Let's start with corns. I mean, almost everybody out there got one or two corns. Uh, what, what are they, and, and and what's the best way to handle? Speak for yourself on that one, Doc. No, I know, I'm a, I know you, you, you're not going to admit having corns, but I bet you got some. But go ahead. Let's talk about the corns. So a corn is an aggregation or an accretion of skin that builds up usually on the top of a joint of a toe. And... Your toes, usually it's toes number two, three, four, and five, not counting the great toe. They will sometimes over time become bent up a little bit. And it's known as the configuration called a hammer toe. Where the high point of the toe is, it jams against the shoe if you in fact have a contracted toe called a hammer toe. And that jamming against the shoe compacts down or packs down the skin cells until you get an accretion or a buildup of painful tissue called a corn. And so what, what, what do we do? Uh, is that the one where you, that's not the one where you use the duct tape? No, that's not the one where you use duct tape. <laughs> that's, that's for warts. Okay, all right. Duct tape so, does work, by the way, that's another topic. But yeah, no. what you do about corns is number one, make sure that the toe box of the shoe is deep enough or high enough so that it doesn't rub on your toes. And the second thing is, if you in fact do that and you still have corns develop, the simple way to take care of them, especially with the, the, the topic of diabetes coming up, is to not use a blade. Don't cut them. Don't use acids to burn them. Use a buffing stone called a pumice stone. And when mm -hmm. the foot is wet, buff gently. Don't be aggressive, especially, especially, especially with our diabetic patients. Well, we got some questions here about certain types of foot problems. Let's start with calluses. Calluses are also a buildup of excess skin cells. They are usually on the bottom of the foot. They can also be on the side of the big toe. And they are in another area where a high pressure point compacts or packs down the skin cells and makes a painful buildup called a callus. Usually, if you look at the knuckle bones on the bottom of the foot, 
if there's a callus under one of them, you'll feel that bone is depressed or dropped down a little bit lower than the others. And that every step you take compounds the packing down of the skin cells in that disproportionate area and it makes a callus. So the deal with the callus is you treat it, as I said, with a corn, buff it gently with a uh, pumice stone after the foot is wet. And more importantly is if you're wearing high heels, get out of high heels, go into flatter shoes. And another self-treatment that's really excellent for this is figure out where the corn is and the callus is on the bottom of the foot. Figure out that's where a dropped knuckle bone is and buy yourself a soft metatarsal pad in the drugstore and place it in the shoe behind where the callus sits. And that will elevate that knuckle bone that's dropped down and compacting the skin cells, making a callus happen. And it will, and a lot of times it will alleviate the callus. Hmm. Another issue that we hear often, and we're really not sure what we're talking about, is the issue of plantar fasciitis. What is plantar fasciitis? Well, your shoes, your feet must be pretty bad, Mr. Dean, because everything. I got, I got plantar fasciitis. <laughs> I, I didn't know what it was. Um, and then I went out and I ran a 10K. And that was the farthest I had ever run at that, at, at that point in time. And about two, a day or two after I got done, my foot like felt like it was on fire. And uh, I, I, went to, I went to the emergency care. They were like, oh, you got plantar fasciitis. And they gave me some, some, some medication. And they said it typically worked. It worked itself out after we went to a few days of medication. But for when it first kicked in, it was very, very painful. Yeah. I could barely walk. Yeah, well, before you, what before you answer that question, I mean, I think what, what you don't realize, those of you who don't have foot problems, you don't realize how important the feet are. And when you have one of these painful problems, uh, it, it really impacts quality of what you're trying to do in the quality of your life. So uh, explain plantar, plantar fasciitis to us, uh, Dr. Well, to define what the plantar fascia is, plantar means the bottom of the foot, and a fascia is a long band of tissue, sort of like a ligament, that goes from the heel bone to the base of the toes. It helps. It is one of the things that helps hold up the arch with something else called the spring ligament and the posterior tibial tendon. But the plantar fascia, when you run, you, of course, use your calf muscle, your Achilles tendon to propel yourself forward. And in so doing, you create excess pull on the Achilles tendon at your heel bone, and that lifts up your heel, and that strains the ligament that is going from your heel on the bottom of your foot now to the toes. And that strain can be acute or subacute, where it's, it happens and you ice it for a few days and it goes away, or it can, can become chronic, which is the more common typical story of plantar fasciitis. The answer to get plantar fasciitis better is number one, stretch the calf muscle, as I talked about earlier. Do the runner stretch where you lean into the wall, one foot forward, one foot back, and let the back leg be straight and lean into the wall for a good 30 to 90 seconds and you will relax the pull of the Achilles tendon on this tissue called the plantar fascia, which is on the underside of the heel bone. And over time, that will relax the pull of the Achilles tendon enough that the plantar fascia can heal itself. Now, paradoxically, the other thing that will help, and even though I've talked in the program so far about not wearing high heels, but to wear a pair of heel elevations, a little soft cushions under the heel can alleviate some of the distress of plantar fasciitis because in so doing, it raises up the heel bone and relaxes the plantar fascia. But as I said before, a raised heel can be a, a thing that shortens your calf muscle. So it's more for temporary use to alleviate the acute symptoms of plantar fasciitis. Well, what about flat feet? I mean, uh, you know, I always wanted to be a great athlete. I was always pretty slow. Uh, and um, the podiatrist told me that he thought I had flat feet and that's what was slowing me down. Um, is it a problem or is it just so natural that you don't have to do anything about it? One thing that I can point to you to look at is if you look in the literature, you'll find a picture somewhere of Jesse Owens, the great Olympian athlete. And I, and I think in the 36 Olympics, and there's a picture of him standing on a plexiglass plate with a picture, a photograph taken underneath. And that is the two, two of the flattest feet you will ever see. Mm -hmm. Of the quickest human beings in, of his era. So a flat foot is not so necessary. You, so you're trying to tell me that my speed had nothing to do 
with a different and a better excuse, Dr. Lenore. All right. All right. Talk some about flat feet. I hate to keep interrupting. No, that's okay. So flat feet are generally hereditary in origin. They can be developmental as well. And that is, as I alluded to earlier, if you become obese and sedentary as an older person, you will ultimately develop flat feet unless you were born with what's called a pes cavus or a rigid high arch foot. So the thing is that the, the arch is held up on the inner side of the ankle by this posterior tibial muscle. If you felt down along your calf muscle on the inner side, you'll feel part of that bulk is a muscle that ends up as a tendon that inserts into your lower ankle bone area. This tendon, the posterior tibial tendon, is a major job of holding up the arch. And if you have excess weight on the foot for too long of a period of time, that tendon elongates. It's like saltwater taffy, it just gives. And when it gives, it lets the arch collapse. And the more the arch collapses, the more the heel rolls out away from the center line of the body. And it's just a perpetual flattening that goes on and on and on. If you've ever walked in a crowded where the airport or wherever, where have you, and you see somebody with a flat foot, you'll notice, of course, that there's no arch, and you'll notice that the heel bone is rotated outward. And that's a, that can be a devastating injury or illness over time. So when you start to get symptoms of a flat foot, oftentimes one of the, the first symptoms of the development of a flat foot is plantar fasciitis. So you want to become someone who stretches that calf muscle because it pulls on the, the posterior tibial tendon. You want to wear a supportive shoe most of the time and you want to look at weight loss regimens to see if you can get your weight to the where the BMI is a more healthy BMI. Here's a, here's a question about uh, heel spurs that uh, somebody's had, had in the uh, in the comment section. So they're asking how to alleviate pain for a heel spur. So I guess first, what are, what are heel spurs, and then how do you alleviate the pain? Heel spurs are an accretion or a buildup of calcium in either the Achilles tendon on the back of the heel or in the plantar fascia on the underside of the heel. And both of them, I sound like a broken record here, but both of them are treated by stretching the calf muscle. Okay. That's, a, that's a key indicator of your health is how flexible your calf muscle is. So the heel spur is something that shows you've had a buildup of, of excess tension on those tissues over time. Mm -hmm. And they, instead of elongating like a saltwater taffy illustration that I gave, they start tearing a little bit. And when they tear, they heal with scar tissue, and scar tissue becomes bigger, bigger scar tissue if you don't do something to alleviate that with the stretching exercise. And that scar tissue becomes a spur or a calcium deposit known as a heel spur. I, I, there was another question about uh, uh, ankle issues. Uh, are ankle issues now the province of the podiatrist? Is that considered part of the foot or is that considered part of the leg? And where and we come in the treatment of ankle injuries? Well, the, the foot and the ankle are one unit that, that work integral to what which one another. And it's it's the realm of podiatry or sports medicine uh, specialists or orthopedic surgeons. But the um, the the key is the the key is that the most common ankle sprain is where the foot rolls inward and the outer part of the foot goes towards the ground and you you can tear or strain the three ligaments that hold the outer part of your ankle together and those ligaments are very key to your health because without the, the integrity of those ligaments the ankle has the tendency to do what it wants to roll again mm -hmm. and so that then becomes a perpetual problem and a rolling ankle that, that goes on and on and on creates a scuffing of the ankle bone inside the ankle joint, and it ultimately will lead to arthritis of the ankle, which is a very debilitating condition. So if you get an ankle sprain, the key is to get a professional to look at it and give you a good rehabilitation program to strengthen those ankle ligaments and muscles up so that you don't go into a chronic condition, which can ultimately lead to arthritis. So speaking of the ankle, I, you know, I've had this injury as well. I know, I know Dr. Lenore is about to I used to be an athlete, doctor. I'm just saying. And so I got a high ankle sprain. 
So could you explain, because I hear that a lot of times when I'm watching sports and I hear about athletes having high ankle sprains and how debilitating and how painful they are. And, and, and when I had it, it lasted a very long time. Um, and so could you explain what a high ankle sprain is and then what, what are the treatment options for a high ankle sprain? Yes, the treatment, the, the, the high ankle sprain is not a sprain on the outer part of the ankle. It's a sprain where the long, the two long bones called the fibula and the tibia come together to comprise the upper part of the ankle joint. There is a ligament that holds those two together. If you're in the listening audience now and you just put your finger on the top of your wrist, you can feel you've got an inner wrist bone and an outer wrist bone. Well, the, the leg is the same way. So this ligament, the high ankle ligament, or interosseous ligament between the tibia and fibula can oftentimes be sprained or strained or torn when the foot is fixed to the ground and the body rapidly goes over the foot and it spreads those bones apart and it can tear out that ligament. So a high ankle sprain is a very devastating injury if it's a real, really significant one. The treatment options initially are to limit rebound type sports and running activities, of course, that's common sense. The next thing is you can have a professional teach you how to bind the ankle where you use uh, athletic tape to hold the two bones together to reduce the stress on that injured ligament. If it gets worse than that and it goes on to a chronic condition, then surgery is oftentimes indicated. And basically what the surgery is, is you go in from the one side of the ankle with a screw and you screw those two bones together until the ligament heal itself. And then in most cases, about 80 to 90% of the cases, the screw is removed after a period of about six to nine months. Okay. And it's, that's a fairly benign procedure because there's no opening in the body made except for a small opening where you can put a screw in and then drive it across. There are other more complicated ways to fix it with surgical buttons and, and tight ropes and that sort of thing. But that's another conversation. Right, one of the things we haven't talked about, well, first of all, let me reintroduce Dr. Mike DeGiacomo. I know, you know, you, I know some of you out there with bad feet, you know, there's a good chance for you to get in here and talk directly to the podiatrist. We call this the least expensive, not the cheapest second opinion, but we're giving you an opportunity to do that. Two, two, two topics we haven't discussed. One is bunions and one is the fungus of the foot. Man, I can really mess up a let your foot in a flip-flop. Uh, but let's first start with the, uh, let's first start with bunions. And this, and this whole issue of minimum incision surgery, because a lot of our audience is sitting out there uh, with that as an option. Yeah, bunions are a situation where the first metatarsal bone in the foot, the long bone, which is at the base of the big toe, drifts away from the other bones and it widens the foot out. And when it does so, ultimately the shoe doesn't let the big toe go with that metatarsal bone. It buckles the big toe towards the middle of the foot and that creates an enlargement of the big toe joint called a bunion. And bunions generally are hereditary in origin. You can see them along family lines very frequently. But the thing is, if you want to not get a bunion and you've got a bunion, next time around get different parents is the old joke. But the, the initial treatment for bunions is typically you can put an arch support in the shoe which lifts the foot on the inner side and takes the pressure away from the bunion Wear a wider toe box shoe so you have room for the bunion. And ultimately, if all this fails and you've tried anti-inflammatories and maybe once a year cortisone injection, if that doesn't help, then surgery is an option. Now, surgery is considered to be a last option, but there are minimal incision surgeries that you alluded to, and those are becoming more and more popular. In actuality, I was doing minimal incision surgery 30 years ago, and I had one first fluoroscopes, the port, you know what a, a lixis, well, the, the thing it was called a lixoscope. It was looked like a radar gun and it had, it was the ability with something in your hand as big as a hairdryer to look through the foot and direct these minimal incision procedures and fix the problem with basically band-aid type surgery. That fell out of, out of uh, use over time because many people were doing it that weren't well trained and they were having bad results and it was abandoned. And the other part of the reason that it was abandoned was they, they weren't using um, tape or fixatives that were adequate for the type of procedure that were being done. But today, a minimal incision surgeon can take a, a pinpoint opening uh, with something as little as the drill that a dentist uses to fill one of your cavities 
and you can make precise, precise cuts with something called a fluoroscope and correct the bunion and put a micro size screw or a staple in that and that holds it in place that takes away some of the problems of the earlier minimal incision surgery. And you can oftentimes walk on this foot with a bunion correction the same day of the surgery. <laughs> I just saw a study out of Israel where they were having a large group of youngsters who had bunions. And the Israelis now have got a, a unique procedure where they're doing a, 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 a straight wire inserted into the big toe and going back towards where the bunion is, they make a precise cut and move the bunion inward and then drive this, this pin further into the foot to hold the bunion in place. And they have the, this large study that they did, they had children walking on these bunions the day of surgery and the pin is removed about six weeks later as a painless in the office procedure. Oh, wow. So there are a lot of advancements in bunion surgery these days. Well, before we, before we go, go on to, on to I don't know what the back is, but before we go on to uh, talk about bunions a bit further, I want to have one. Turn down your volume. Yeah, yeah. Turn down your volume. Yeah, turn down your volume. All right. Turn down your Is that better? Yeah, it's better. All right, what about that? All right, one of the want to talk about bunions uh, as much as I can, I can go into the room. Is that better? Still feedback? Yeah, still an echo. Well, anyway, let's try to get some things in anyway. I want every man who's watching this to look down at his toes. And I know a lot of you are a frightening type of a fungal infection. How far have we come in the ability? to treat fungus to the toes, Dr. Well, the first thing is prevent it. So if you get a loose toenail, let's say you've jammed it playing tennis or jogging or doing yoga, for instance, or whatever, and you've lifted up a little edge of a toenail and you don't think about that or treat it appropriately, then that, every time you bathe, shower, or sweat, there's moisture that stays there. And moisture under a closed spot like that with a little roof over it, is the perfect place to breed fungus. So the first thing is, if you've got a loose part of the nail, clip it back as best you can and as far back as you can as far as it's loose, and then start using rubbing alcohol on the nail bed so that you dehydrate it or dry it out after bathing, showering, or doing athletic endeavors, and that will prevent the fungus from happening. Now, if you've got fungus and it's profound, then the simple treatment that's a self-treatment is to file down the thickness of the nail as best you can on a weekly basis to keep that as thin as possible. And then use one of the over-the-counter products uh, for fungus, which uh, Tinactin and several other products are out there. The, um, the treatment beyond that is to take an oral medication. The most common one is terbinafine. And this is something that is only by prescription and it, you should have a baseline liver function studies done and have those tested every 30 to 60 days while you're on the, the uh, terbinafine. But it, it has about a 70% chance of clearing. But that being said, even if you get cleared and you've been on the medication, if you don't do the prophylactic treatment that I talked about and you get a new injury to a nail, you're gonna have the fungus back again. Mm -hmm. What am I taking oral medicines? What's that? What about the oral medicine? Well, that's terbinafine. Oh, that's the Well, there are many others. Uh, there's griseofulvin, and there's just a whole bunch of them, but they're all essentially the same uh, mode of, mode of me me mechanism of action, that is. So, so I, I know there's a lot of um, our audience that gets, um, when they go to get uh, a pedicure, are those good for your feet or should they be doing something different in terms of their foot care? If you get a pedicure, you should check the, the hygiene of the place. Obviously with COVID, there's, I think there's been more emphasis on that. So masking and that sort of thing. But the instruments should be sterilized between patients and it should be autoclave sterilized. That's pressure and heat combined. 
And the, um, the typical problem that I used to see with pedicurus was they round off the toenail edges, especially on the great toe. So those toenails should be left square. But if they're okay. rounded off, then the soft tissue, the flesh, kind of rolls up over that edge where the nail used to be square. And then as the nail grows out, it pokes into that flesh, makes an opening and creates an ingrown toenail or an infection. That is the most common problem that I see in addition to other problems where uh, bacterial infections have ensued because there wasn't a good hygiene. We got a question about gout on foot. How can you tell gout from the, some other types of injury? Gout is typically uh, the situation where it will most often afflict the big toe joint. It is acutely uncomfortable. It is worse with motion and activity. And oftentimes you will feel heat uh, by holding the hand a few centimeters away from the foot part that has gout. Gout is an acute inflammatory response and it can be a, severely painful. And also in conjunction with um, gout alone, we sometimes see ulcers develop where gout, the gouty crystals try to escape the body because there's so much pressure in the joint. Now, we got a question. We got one another question about a bunion on the little on the little toe side of the foot. Is that possible? It's possible, and it's called a Taylor's bunion. It's very common, as a matter of fact. And that oftentimes you treat you treat the same way with the wider shoe. In this case, an arch support won't help. It'll make it worse because if you think about it, you raise the arch, and then you throw the weight over onto the slot this little toe side of the foot, and you you exacerbate or make worse the Taylor's bunion. So a wider shoe. A flatter shoe will help a tailor's bunion. And if all else fails, and like I say, anti-inflammatories or pads and that sort of stuff doesn't help, then um, surgery is indicated. Well, let's talk a little bit about diabetic and diabetes and its effect on the foot. I have a question here of a 65-year-old diabetic with collapsed feet, two bunions, the one on the right foot, is terribly going to the right side, and it's very big. Would this be a would that be good for? that be good for you? I guess he's asking what can be done? Well, the first thing is to see how the diabetes is being controlled. The A1C numbers have to be near normal before you would contemplate anything in the way of surgical correction. If the flat, if the arch is already flattened and there are severe bunions and what you call lateral drifting of the big toe uh, and in, in, in a diabetic patient, uh, surgery should, pro should probably be avoided. Uh, so that that then leads you to what do you do? And you go to a foot specialist, a podiatrist, and you get diabetic shoes that are custom made and custom fitted. And they can actually be made from a mold of the foot or they can be off the shelf, but they're special off the shelf shoes. And they can accommodate the, last, the lack of the arch by holding up the arch and by creating a more a generous toe box so that there isn't pressure on the bunion, which can create ultimately a diabetic ulcer. Now, how can people with diabetes tell that their feet are getting in trouble? What are some of the what are some of the early signs of that? Well, the first thing is the diabetic frequently develops what we call diabetic neuropathy, and that takes away your ability to feel pain or discomfort. So the main thing for a diabetic is, aside from the usual diabetic care and keep your A1C normal and your your BMI normal, your weight that is is to inspect your feet every day. Don't let 24 hours go without inspecting your feet. Look at the top, look at the bottom, look between the toes. If you see even the smallest hint of a sore or an ulceration, get attention by your medical professional immediately because these little things are like wildfire. They'll take off and you can lose a limb before you even know it. Mm -hmm. I have one more question that I think we have time for. Certainly this has been a very active uh, 45 40 minutes or so uh with a pedicure now they're putting they're they're putting plastic uh in in the tub and then they changed it with every customer uh, i don't know exactly what the implications I, I know what they're talking about they they use a plastic liner like a big garbage bag yeah and they fill that with water do the pedicure and then when it's done they throw that bag away so there's no contact from that person to the next person and right. that's an way to deal with it well, and, and, and i think if, if we can keep that plastic and then if, if, this, the, if they're using if they're using different instruments on your feet 
uh, then that will help as well. So I, I've seen them. Open, I like to see when they open up that pumice packet. I like to see them open it up. So that's a brand new pumice stone on my foot or whatever they whatever they're using. <laughs> Right. All right, well, Dr. Giacomo, thank you so much for spending this time with us. I think we we covered most of the questions, but I think there are enough interest that we're going to have you back on a fairly regular basis. We probably need you just to take care of Mr. Dean with all the problems he's mentioned. I got, my, I got my foot prop taken care of. I wear my, uh, I wear my, my old man New, new Balance. Uh, <laughs> I wear my new balance and my sketches, and I'm good. <laughs> All right. Well, well, thank you once again, Dr. Giacomo. Pleasure is mine. Thank you. We appreciate thank you taking the time to join us. I enjoyed this. I, I now we want to introduce one of our favorite people, Dr. Leonor Coleman. Dr. Leonor Coleman is the world's expert in diabetes. She's even the universal expert in diabetes in the African American community. <laughs> nobody that I know who knows more about diabetes than Dr. Leonor Coleman. So we, uh, she is with us today uh, to answer some of your questions, but to talk about what she does and what she's doing to give you the kind of information that you need uh, to take care of, to prevent and take care of diabetes. Uh, we'll turn it over to Mr. Dean at this point. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to encourage, before we even get started with Dr. Coleman, I'm going to encourage all of you to get a pencil and a piece of paper handy because you're about to get some information that you're going to need for either yourself or your family member or your friend. So write this down because I don't want you trying to recall it later on and have it messing up. Write it down, get this information. So, so welcome, Dr. Coleman. Hey, how are you guys doing? Nice to see you. We're yes, just like my mother used to say, don't be calling me. <laughs> I told you to get the piece of paper. So yeah, here's a question, and I'm going to go, in, and I know we're talking about diabetes, but I think people, what people don't understand, Dr. Coleman, is this. You could be pre-diabetic, and a lot of people don't understand what it means to be pre-diabetic. They understand, oh, the doctor says you got diabetes, okay, I got the sugar, or whatever y'all want to call it, and then they move on, but they don't understand that there's a process to, and that process is you being pre-diabetic, and you can—I think you can reverse it. So you let us know: a, what is being pre-diabetic, and what can we do to reverse it, or what can we notice, and how can we reverse it? So you said a couple of really important things. The first thing you said is a lot of people don't know about pre-diabetes, right. and the issue is: is there are 88 million people in the United States that have pre-diabetes? That's the first. Say thing. that again. Say that again. Say 88 that again. million. 88 million, and they don't know they have prediabetes, right? And then when the doctor tells them they have prediabetes, they only have a clue what the doctor's talking about. Right. So this is something that people don't know. Before you have diabetes, you have prediabetes. And so what I'm trying to do, with the rest of what I, I do for Healing Our Village, we focus on diabetes, but I've now decided to help this 88 million people that don't know they have prediabetes. Because if I can catch them, before they get diabetes, which is diagnosed at a blood sugar of 126 or greater, if I can catch them between 100 and 125, that's, that's your blood glucose, between 100 and 125 in the morning when you first get up, you haven't had anything to eat, if I can catch you there, then, then if I do what I'm supposed to do and you do what you're supposed to do, which is watch your carbohydrates, watch your sugars, watch your starches, watch your portions, Try to get more exercise in every week. If you can start working on that, then I can prevent you from getting diabetes. And this is not just something I think I know. This is something we know we know because there was a huge NIH study that showed if we did certain things like watch our portions, watch our sugars, lose some weight. If we did those things, then we would be able to um, decrease our, our blood sugars and actually reverse diabetes. And so that's, that's a big deal. Just think about it. If I could get a third of those 88 million to go back to normal glucose tolerance, wouldn't that be something? That'd be something. And, and let me just give the, our, our, our audience some context. So 88 million people, we live in a country that has 330 million. We yeah. have 220 million adults. Right. So you just said 88 million of that. That is a significant portion of people walking around with prediabetes that probably don't know that they have prediabetes. 
Yep. And so I, that's why I put it on the screen there. So pre-diabetes, if your blood sugar level is between 100 and 125, you are in that pre-diabetic state. And right. so therefore, if you when you go for your checkup and your doctor says, uh, here's your blood sugar level, if you see what those numbers in there, if it's over 100, but lower than 125, you're pre-diabetic. So Dr. Coleman, how do we help people? How do we get them to move that number back down to normal level so they don't hit cross over that 126 number that gets them to diabetes? Okay. So this is where I've been really devoting a lot of my uh, 40 years of my this career that I've been doing is trying to get people to change behavior. And it's, it's, it's not easy. You know, people say, oh, well, you, all you have to do is just, you know, I don't understand why people are so overweight. All you have to do is this. Well, the reason they say that is because they're not overweight. But if they were overweight, then they wouldn't be talking to me about all you got to do is. Okay, so that's the first thing. All right, I've been struggling with my weight since I was eight years old. So I am understanding this whole thing. And it's not necessarily that I don't know what to do, because you know I know what to do, right? Mm -hmm. It's not about knowledge. It's about actually figuring out how you're going to change your daily routine and your lifestyle and what you buy when you go to the grocery store and what you eat that's in your refrigerator. And you can't be talking about, well, I bought the cookies for the kids. Okay. All right. I want to hear about you done bought the cookies and the ice cream for the kids because the kids don't have no weight problems. So, but that's why they're here in my, I don't want to hear that. No. Okay. So the whole family needs to understand that you need to have a healthy and a safe kitchen and refrigerator for you to go into that's not going to sabotage your healthy eating plan. Okay, that's what you got to do. Right. And so, because let me tell you something, and, and y'all know I'm, I'm right. And if you don't believe me, go to any Walmart in America. And I want you to go to Walmart, and I want you to look at all the folks who obviously did not look at what they looked like when they w walked out of the house to see how many really, 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 can I add two more reallys? Really, really big people we got in this country. So we're looking at 66% of this country is overweight and 33 or greater percent of this country is obese. And mm -hmm. so this overeating and not getting any exercise, and then we're not gonna even talk about the COVID spread. Mm -hmm. okay, the COVID spread. In fact, I asked my friends, did you have COVID-19? They said, yeah, I gained 19 pounds. <laughs> yeah. well, that's that's COVID-19. I gained 19 pounds. Okay. I, get, I got my COVID-19. Yeah. <laughs> Lord have mercy. So, you know, so when we weren't exercising and, and eating right as it was, and then we stayed home. And so then it's even worse. So this whole idea of diabetes and pre-diabetes all really has hinges on the fact that we are more overweight than we have ever been. Now, I've been at this for 40 years. I went back and looked at, I got out of pharmacy school in 1979. And so I went back and looked at my very first lecture that I gave about diabetes back in 1979, 1980. And at that time, the number of people in the United States that had diabetes was 5 million. Mm. And we're at 34.2 million and counting. So it has to do with the weight gain. It has to do with we drive everywhere. It has to do with our kids are overweight. And they're making fat cells that, you know, once you make a fat cell, it doesn't go away. It just empties out. But the fat cell's still in your body. So, you know, I remember getting up in the morning when I was a kid, doing my chores, my, it was 10 o'clock. I said, Mama, can I go? And she said, yeah, be home before dark. And I'd get on my bicycle and I would I would bike two miles to get to my grandmama's house. Right. And then I would play all day and then be back um, to my house before the lights went on in the street. That was what life looked like back in the, in the 60s, 70s, 80s. So that's not what life looks like now. Okay. I have a question for you. Are these numbers new numbers? Or is it was you know in the eighties we weren't counting anything black people had. I mean and we didn't know anything about half of them. Uh, there was no interest really in measuring the kinds of things that black people did had or, or as values. So are, is it the fact that we are more cognizant of diabetes now, or is there something that's happened 
uh, uh, to um, to uh, in America. Because I remember my grandmother she get up and kill the chicken and bring out biscuits and fried chicken and everything. This was a, this was before nine o'clock. Right. And I don't see. I thought I, I thought people were a little bit healthier now. Well, okay, so so she got she made all that food and she cooked it by, by, from scratch, and that was the other thing. So there's a lot of chemicals and stuff in our foods that wasn't in the foods that we used to cook back in the day. So that contributes. We don't know exactly what we're eating, right? Sometimes they put a whole lot of fat in a particular product to, or sugar in a product to make it taste better. See, when you were cooking fresh, you had she had probably had a garden. She probably was doing all of that. But let me tell you, when you was cooking, did you ever make ice cream when you were young? See, I'm dating myself. Do you know how tired you was after you turned that gear? <laughs> Buddy. Now, just plug it in and hit that button. Yeah, you burn 200 calories just to get just to get a little taste of ice cream. <laughs> but to make we a work hard to eat. We don't work hard to eat now, and that's the difference. <laughs> but to make a point, we did have that soda water and red soda yeah. water. Yeah, that, that could have that had to have a lot of sugar. Yeah, it did. It did. The point I'm trying to make the point is what what really has happened to us uh, as a country? Is it just the food, or is it we better counters? I think that there is something to be said about the the testing is better and more accurate. There is something to be said about people are you know I think have more access to care. And so a lot of a lot of people have physicians now. Be, uh, even if they are, you know, have Medicaid, they still can go and see a doctor if they want to. The issue with African Americans, though, which is really from because I've been studying this my whole life, they they don't go to the doctor. Now the women go to the doctor. Do they go to their OBGYN? But they don't necessarily have an internal medicine doctor. Even the women and the men, they don't go to the doctor. Unless the wife puts them in a car and or the girlfriend and and takes them there, but they're not trying to check on their on their health, so it's hard to tell what was really going on um, in with diabetes. I think back in the fifties, sixties, seventies, but you know over the you know I'd say the last thirty you know thirty years or so, a lot of it has to do with when you think about my father and my mother. My mother was working. My father was working. He was a mail carrier. He worked for the post office. He used to walk his route. There wasn't no mail truck where you sat in there and put the mail in the, in the, in the mailbox. He walked his route, carrying the bag. So the things have just changed. You know, I, I take care of a lot of African-American men who have diabetes. And a lot of them, you know, they're, they're still doing electrical work, plumbing. They're still driving a truck. You can always see who's sort of working out there in the field, right, because what kind of car they drive. Right? Are they driving the Volvo SUV or are they driving, you know, a, a, a Chevy truck? And the, my truck driving brothers, you know, the plumbers, the electrician, the HVAC, most of them are not overweight. They're not because they're working outside. They're walking, but they still have diabetes. And the reason why is because it's genetic. So, you know, we talk a lot about food and environment and all of that and exercise and lifestyle. We talk a lot about that. But the other piece of this is that it's genetic. So it runs in families. So I have diabetes in my family. So I have to actually work hard to keep my blood sugar normal because my blood sugar will climb up very quickly if I don't because I have it in my family. So that's why you see a lot of people that have it. Well, I think I think you're making a good point, and all that goes into the social determinants of health. I know that's a catchphrase that people use all the time, but it's a it's a big issue. There's more processed food. There's more access. They didn't have when we were growing. When I was growing up, you know, Gatorade didn't exist, right? And so, right. and those those sports drinks that they're filled with sugar and no, sodium, and the kids are drinking them all day, every day nowadays. It, you know, sodas were expensive when I was growing up as a kid. My mom didn't let me drink Cokes and, and Sprites and all that stuff. That was a treat. It was water and it was homemade lemonade with with, with lemons. And, 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 don't, and don't forget, don't forget Kool-Aid. And Kool-Aid, yeah. I forgot about Kool-Aid. Kool-Aid. Yeah. Kool-Aid. There was a lot of sugar in Kool-Aid. But my mom didn't let us drink, drink didn't let us drink that and a lot of juices. So it was water. That was that was pretty much it. Um, so I, I think ultimately, so... Dr. Coleman, as we're, we're wrapping up here, what are you doing with Healing Our Village to 
help fight? I know you've been fighting it your entire career, but what have you developed with Healing Our Village to really help people combat diabetes? So the most exciting thing that I've developed this in 2021 is I now have a mobile app. And the name of the app is called Step Up 90. And I called it Step Up 90 because if you use this guided mobile app in 90 days, you're going to lose about 5% of your weight. So whatever pounds you started with, you, you multiply that time 5%. And I'm telling you that in 90 days, if you follow all the, the guidance that we're going to give you, you're going to drop at least 5%. So this is a guided mobile app. There's tons of mobile apps out there for weight loss and calorie counting and all of this. This is actually the, the CDC approved Prevent T2 program that I have put onto a mobile app. And it's guided because every week, we're going to have a, a, a pharmacist, diabetes educator, nutritionist, lifestyle coach teach the class, so the one-hour class. And it's Zoom, so as many people as want to be on it can be on it. And then we will assign you a coach who will call you during the week just to see if you understood everything, that you make sure everything's going well. And on this app are all of the 26 curriculum for Prevent T2. I, they're videos of me giving the lecture. Each lecture is about 30 minutes. And I have recipes from the Soul Food Cookbook. So you'll now be able to get your recipes, download them. And if you buy the premium package, we're going to be doing cooking demonstrations by the Soul Food Cookbook folks. I got found my line dancer. His name's Warren Moon. We're going to be line dancing on your phone. And we're going to be doing Zumba on your phone. And so we're going to be doing all sorts of really cool things. And so I don't have to worry about you telling me you don't have a car to get to my class or you don't, you know, you, you, you uh, don't feel good, don't feel like leaving your house or whatever the excuse is. We're about to eliminate all excuses. Step, well, you, up, you, 90. What's the name? Step up 90 is the name of the app. Where is it available? Um, it, we are launching on August the 1st. And it'll okay. be at stepup90.com. You don't have to go to no app store to download anything. We're not doing that. So you're just going to go to the website, stepup90.com, on August the 1st, and you'll be able to download the app. We're giving a, a free 30-day trial, and we uh, we need you to tell us what you think. You know, I think what would be a good idea, Mr. Dean, if that's okay with you, is to have Dr. Coleman back next week to start to talk a little bit more in detail about diabetes and give us a little more expansive uh, discussion uh, of what she's trying to do. She not only just has an app, she got a radio program, a TV program, a Zumba class. She does it all, man. I'm trying to tell you. on TikTok. She's everywhere. But I think the one thing you'll find out, and we want our audience to find out, is that Dr. Coleman is one of the foremost experts. And I want the understanding um, but the management of asthma, and we're going to get into that as the first part of next week's show. So we want you to commit uh, to come to visit with us next week. Uh, come back with us next week because we need to talk about medications. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We need to talk about medications today yeah. and, and medications that are used to control diabetes. We haven't talked about uh, procedures like uh, 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 Dr. Giacomo talked about, touching your leg, making sure that you, because you get that diabetic neuropathy and you don't get those feelings and that can lead to amputations. And we know black people have more unnecessary amputations with yeah. regard to diabetic complications than yeah. any other group in the country. Uh, yes, yes, Lynn, she is great. Um, and then finally, also, We've had recently, uh, Biz Marquis, uh, the, the the famous rapper, just died recently. Yeah, that's so sad. Diabetic complications, and so we know uh, uh, Five Dogs from from Tribe Called Quest. I'm getting into rap now, but there have been several celebrities that have have died as a result of diabetic complications. And many of y'all don't know that Holly Berry is living with diabetes as well. And Luther so, Vandross died because of diabetes complications. Really amazing people for no, for no good reason. No good reasons other than the fact that they had, they did not, they were poorly managing their, their diabetes. So your app, Step Up 90, is going to be help people lose that 5% of, the, of their weight, which you lose the weight will help get you. And then we'll talk about that diet next week. We'll talk about diet and how you can use your diet to control your diabetes. And so you don't have to, to help you get off those medications eventually. So yeah, yeah Dr. Coleman, mm -hmm. I think we need you to commit right now. Okay. Come back and talk to us next week. We want, and we want everybody to tell you about 
and friends to join the Wellness Watch because here's the place where you can ask questions of yes. the experts. So, Dr. Cole, we want to thank you. Like I say, this is just part one. Okay. We're going to go to part two, first part of the next first yep. part of the program next week, uh, and we appreciate you taking the time today. Uh, so, right. thank you so much, guys. Appreciate you. You gonna sing us out, uh, Dr. Moore? I can barely speak, much less sing. <laughs> I want people to remember that health is the biggest asset. So, protect it. We'll see you next week on the Wellness Watch. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Lenore. Remember, listeners, Black Doctors Speak is a weekly podcast sponsored by the African American Wellness Project, the Markel Lenore Endowment, and the Dan Weinstein Family Fund. Continue the conversation with us on social media at Black Doctors Speak, on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn, and at Black Doc Speak on Twitter. If you enjoyed our show, please remember to hit the subscribe button so that new episodes are delivered directly to you every week, as well as rate us on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, listening to our show is as simple as telling your Alexa, Siri, or Google to play the Black Doctor Speak podcast. Take care, everyone.